nine into one week for Pastor Legault are both of the lessons on Job. So we're going to teach the entire book of Job in one week. I know it took me way longer than that last time, but uh, we're going to try and do it in one week. I think this is the Lord punishing me, and it's Pastor Legault messing with me as he is home with back spasms this morning and is in a whole lot of pain. So pray for Pastor Legault. Other than that, I'm going to uh, I'm going to try to hurry along. And Job chapter 1 is where we'll be. We'll start at chapter 1 and we will go through, Lord willing, the entirety of the book. And obviously I will not be reading all of the verses this time. So uh, Job chapter 1 and verse number 1, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And so here he is, and here's Job. And uh, you have a man of great character. And uh, we're going to talk about him uh, and his life and the entirety of the book this morning. So let's go to Lord in prayer. And I'm going to move fast, so uh, hopefully we can do that, all right? Lord, I do thank you for the day, and I thank you for your goodness and your mercies to us. I pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts today. Father, I pray you'd be with Pastor Legault, strengthen and help him to recover. Lord, that you'd uh, just help him to get the rest that he needs today. Be with Mrs. Legault as she continues to recover as well, that the two of them would, uh, Lord, be able to be with us soon. Lord, uh, be with me, Father, as I teach and I preach today. You'd help me to say everything just the way it ought to be said. And Father, give me wisdom, Lord, as I speak. Lord, we do pray that you would just minister grace to the hearers. Lord, if someone comes in today without Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray they wouldn't leave that way. They'd call upon you today to save them for all eternity. Father, we love you and we pray you'd come back soon in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So first of all, uh, the character of Job. You have a rich man who was both materially wealthy with all the substance that he had in verse number 3. Uh, but he is also a spiritually rich man. He's got a good relationship with the Lord. He's upright. He's one that fears God and eschews evil. So he's a good man both morally and spiritually as well as uh, he's got quite a bit of wealth that he has put together. Uh, now, uh, notice he also separates himself from evil. He's one that feared God and eschewed evil. He put away evil. Uh, that's who Job was. Job was a man who wanted to separate himself uh, from all of those things. Not only that, but in verse number 5, you find out that Job feared God for, and uh, did so by making sacrifices. He shows off making sacrifices in verse number 5, and it says that he, uh, when the days of their feasting were gone about his kids... That Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Job was uh, constantly trying to be aware of his relationship with God. He was constantly trying to be aware uh, whether he and God were, were on the same page on those things. And he always wanted to make sure, even for his children... That, uh, that they were taken care of and that they were on the, on, a, on the right path with God. And he wanted to make sure their relationship wasn't hindered. And so Job is a very spiritual and a very upright and a very good man, a uh, good character and definitely a man uh, good, with good standing in the eyes of God. Now, of course, we understand and we see it throughout the book. We know the book. I, I'm kind of jumping to a slight conclusion that you've heard of a man by the name of Job before today. Uh, and so we understand that he goes through a great trial. There's a challenge that comes. And the challenge ultimately isn't Job. The challenge is between God and Satan. And the challenge comes in verse number 6, when the sons of God show up in front of the Lord, Satan comes and the Lord and him have that discussion as you continue to read down. Uh, and the Lord asks him that question in verse number 8, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Verse 9, That Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. 
But for, put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto him, Satan, behold, all that he hath is in thy power only upon himself. Put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Now we, knows what, we know what happens. Uh, the first contest comes and God and, and Satan go against each other. And the Lord basically puts the challenge down. Hey, could you, my servant Job, there he is. And Satan's answer is, well, doesn't he, doesn't he, fear, doesn't he fear you? Doesn't he? Even Satan knows his standing with God and the, and the relationship Job has with God. And God allows, he gives permission for the devil to take everything from Job, but he couldn't touch Job himself. Then we get the second contest. Job, of course, passes the test and nothing happens. Job doesn't sin or charge God foolishly. And his response is to worship God and blessed be the name of the Lord. And then you get the second challenge shows up. Uh, and chapter 2, you get the second challenge. And they show up, and now the Lord's going to remove that hedge of protection about the body of Job, but says uh, you, can touch, you can touch his body, but you can't take his life. Uh, there's one thing you can't take. You can't take his life. The rest of it, go ahead and do what you want to do. And once again, Job passes the test. Job goes ahead and keeps his integrity. His wife asks him the question in verse number 9, Dost thou still retain thine integrity, curse God, and die? And his answer is, well, you're talking like one of those foolish women. <laughs> Don't you know that it's God who takes care of it? Don't you know who God is? Shall we not receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this did not Job sin with his lips in verse number 10 of chapter 2. And so Job holds that integrity. Satan loses twice in the first two chapters of the book, and God has won, uh, but here's Job. Now Job has all of his possessions taken. He's lost all of his children. His wife's told him to curse God and die. He's lost his health. He's covered from, with boils and sores from the, head of his, uh, from the top of his head to the sole of his foot. And he's left sitting in ashes and dirt, scraping the, uh, the sores and having the dogs come and lick the sores. He's left in a mess. At the end of chapter 2, you have his three friends show up. And in Job chapter 2 and verse 11, you've got his three friends that come, and you can read about them. Uh, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. These three guys come, and they come. Notice what they came to do at the end of verse 11. They had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. That's what they came to do. They came to mourn with him, and they came to comfort him. Good plan, right? It, that's good intention right there. His three friends are they're here, and their job is to comfort. Now, you start getting into what they actually say. Now we get into a problem. Uh, so the three friends show up, and, and obviously uh, they go back and forth. We've seen that. All right, I already taught through the entirety of the book of Job once. Uh, so we're doing the great recap right here. And uh, in chapter 3, uh, Job speaks. Uh, chapter 4, Eliphaz starts. Now, uh, I'm not going to go through and read all of the things that these guys say. If you want to take some note, I'm going to give you some references. Uh, obviously, I'm teaching two lessons at once, so I'm, I'm moving quicker than I want to. Uh, but chapter 4, verses 7 to 11, you find out that Eliphaz has deemed that Job is being punished because he is a sinner. That's the, that's, the, uh, that's the statement from Eliphaz. Eliphaz is going, you must, you must be being punished because you are a sinner. That is, that is what he decides. Bildad in Job chapter 8, verses 3 to 6, you find out that Bildad says that God is giving Job exactly what he deserves. Job, you deserve to have everything taken from you and your kids all, de all destroyed, and you deserve to be left in ashes and sores and destroyed. You got what you deserved. Job. Uh, Zophar, in Job chapter 11, verses 3 and 6 in particular, he says that Job is lying and that he deserves even more punishment than what he has already gotten. How about that? Uh, so these guys show up to comfort, and when they show up, seven days, they're sitting there, silent, Job speaks, and then all of a sudden these guys start sounding off. Here they go. 
and it's Job. You deserve what you've gotten. Uh, you're being punished because you're wicked. And uh, you deserve even more because you're lying and saying that you're righteous when you're not righteous. Now, all three friends, turn over to Job chapter 16, if you would. Job chapter 16. And you find out Job's the son of three friends here that have come to comfort him. All three friends make the same mistake. In Job chapter 16, verse number 2, he says, I have heard many such things, Job speaking, miserable comforters are ye all. Uh, that's his assessment. He goes, you didn't bring me any comfort at all. Uh, were, it was better those first seven days when you sat there and were silent. Uh, you guys have brought me no comfort. Now I, now I deserve what I've gotten. I'm a sinner, so you, you know, I'm in trouble with God, and so I deserve worse because now I'm a liar on top of doing all the other things that you can't even point out that I've done wrong. And that's, that's poor Job right here. And he's got these friends. Now, the problem that you have is that uh, most of the time men look from the outside in and they have no idea what the truth is. Uh, you get over to jo James, the book of James, chapter 1. In verse number 3, he says, Knowing this, that the trying of your, pa your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. They couldn't figure out that Job's learning some things. And although Job really was a righteous man, he was perfect and upright in the eyes of God. That's the Lord's description of him. The Lord's description of Job before Satan shows up is that he's perfect and upright, one that fears God and eschews evil. That's God's description of Job. And his friends can't figure that out. Uh, his friends, they fail to really be comforts to him because they don't know how to sorrow and sympathize with him. How do you sympathize with somebody who lost everything that they had and lost all of their children and now they're in a mess, and their health is gone, and their wife is possibly left. She might have walked away. We don't know if she's there or if she's not there. She never seems to show up again after she told them to curse God and die. So where she went, we don't really know. And so he is stuck basically by himself. His three friends show up, and they kick him in the teeth while he's down. Why? They have no idea how to sympathize with him. Now, granted, somebody's gone through that. How do you sympathize with that? How can you empathize with that? How can you even imagine? I mean, they sat there for seven days astonished at how bad it was for Job. They sat there in silence going, I don't even know what to say. And then Job opened his mouth and they went, well, I mean, if he's going to talk, I guess we better say something. When they could have just stayed there and stayed silent, it probably would have been better for him. Uh, you ever been in a situation where you just had no idea how to sympathize with somebody? You just sat there and went, and it's weep with those who weep. And that's about all you've got because you have no clue what to say. And I'd highly advise not pulling out Romans 8.28 at that particular moment and letting them know that everything's going to work out for good because they know that fact. Most people know that fact. If they've been saved for any length of time, they know God's going to work this thing out. But right now, they're not ready for that. They're mourning. They're mourning their losses, they're mourning the hurt, they're dealing with the pain and the suffering that they're going through and the trial that they're in the midst of, and that is not a comfort. It's a comfort, yes, but it's not a comfort when it comes from you. It's a comfort when the Lord brings that back to their memory for them. That's when that becomes a comfort. It's not great when I just stand there and go, oh no, everything's going to be fine because the Lord's going to work all that out for good. Not when you're in the midst of it. You know what you're thinking? God, what are you doing to me? God, did I do something? God, is this, that's what you're thinking. And when someone else wants to point all those things out, that's not sympathetic. It's well-meaning probably, but so were the three comforters that showed up. They came to comfort. That's what they want to do, mourn with him and comfort him and help him. And sometimes we have the right intentions and we have lousy execution. And you ought to, you ought to think about it. Uh, they have an inflexible concept of the way that God works. They can't think of God in another light than the only way you get punished is if you're a sinner. The only way bad things happen to good people is that they're not really good. 
That's the three friends. That's their assessment. Their assessment is you had to have done something wrong, Job. They are too proud to listen and failed to honestly examine their own belief. They do not look internally. They do not look at the way that things do not quite line up. They do not take a real honest assessment of Job, nor do they take a real honest assessment of themselves. They had thinking that was logical, but not very spiritual. Logical means is, that's worldly mentality. Worldly mentality is logical, carnal. Oh, if it logically works, then it has to be right. How many illogical things does God do? I mean, how many times do you have to see battles in the Old Testament and find out that God doesn't do things logically? How many times do you have to see what he does and go ahead and go, well, yeah, that was the logical thing that he would do. No, if it was logical, then it wouldn't be giving God any glory. He likes to do the weirdest, most imaginative, strangest, craziest things, and then we go, oh, the only way to explain that is God. Well, that's why he does it that way. He does it that way so that men marvel at the greatness of who he is. So that you and I will still marvel at the greatness of who he is, even though we've gotten to know him. We still marvel at his greatness and at his goodness to us. We marvel at the blessings he can give us and the times when he shows up when we certainly do not deserve him to show up and the times when he comes through for us when we really didn't deserve him to fix that, but he still fixed it anyways. But the three friends here, you know what they do? They don't recognize the fact that Jesus is a sinless man and he suffered more than any man. Well, why would Jesus suffer? He's sinless. Well, that doesn't fit their, dog, their dogmatic statements. Well, if you only get punished because you're a sinner, Jesus didn't deserve any punishments. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Not logical, but very spiritual. They said some things that were true, but they didn't necessarily apply to Job's situation. They had a lot of true things that they said. They said factual statements. They were just misapplied to the person they were talking to. You ever deal with somebody who can say all the right things? These are facts, but they have no clue where they actually fit. That's how you get false doctrines. They quote a Bible verse and then they slide it in where they want it to fit and make it sound really good so that they can do what they want to or say what they want to. The Lord has certain things in place and you can go ahead and pull that verse out of context if you like and you can go ahead and forget about what it actually means and doctrinally fits, but it's not going to help you. God has certain things that he has put in place to make sure you and I understand that we rightly divide the word of truth so that things fit where they're supposed to fit because if we start pulling things out from wherever we want to and we apply it wherever we want to, it doesn't work very well. And you got to be careful of that. They also, um, they also had a hard time trying to help somebody going through all the troubles. They had a hard time figuring out what to really say and help them. That's most people. Most people have no clue what to say to somebody who's going through problems. By the way, there's more to be learned in the house of mourning than in the house of mirth. You want to you talk about making, learning some lessons? It happens in the times of sorrow, in the times of troubles. We grow the most when we're in troubles. Our faith can grow. Our learning is, it grows exponentially when we start going through troubles and trials. When you start going into that house of mirth, you can learn some things from other people. The house of mourning, you can go in there and you can learn more. Instead of going in and being merry and, and excited, the good times, you don't learn much. It's the hard times you learn how great of a God that you serve. 
So what makes Job such a great example throughout the scriptures? Well, he knew, number one, he knew that the Lord was in control. He knew that the Lord was in control. And outside of some late statements, he keeps himself from sinning when the trouble showed up at first. Uh, You talk about taking some of the hardest hits that anybody could ever take. And all this, Job sinned not with his lips, nor charged God foolishly. That's why he's a great example. How many times when the trouble comes and the trials come, do we go, God, what are you doing to me? God, why me? I thought I was doing everything great. Isn't Job doing everything great in chapter 1 chapter 2? And the hit still comes. The trouble still shows. He's great because in Job chapter 6, he says in verse number 24 that he was willing to be taught. Teach me. Show me where I'm wrong. He's telling his friends, show me where I'm wrong. If the Lord would show me, I would do it. I would fix it. In Job chapter 7, he confesses that he he was a sinner. He He hasn't done everything perfect. He understands he's a sinner. All men are sinners. That's why he made the sacrifices. That's why he did all the things that he did. He feared God. Although he had sinned, he's going, I don't know what I did for this. He's a great example because in Job chapter 9, he makes sure that he ascribes the greatness to God. You're going through troubles, you say, what do you do? Ascribe greatness to God. Why? He's the one who's going to get you out of it. He's the one who's going to get you through the trouble. He acknowledges God as his creator in Job chapter 10. He trusts God no matter what. Job chapter 13 and verse 15. He knew something better was to come in Job chapter 23. I like that one. I know that my Redeemer liveth. And I will stand before him. In my flesh I shall see God. Amazing. He relied on God's word in Job chapter 23 and verse number 12. He makes sure he understands that it's his words. that His statement about it is that uh, he esteemed the words of his mouth more than his necessary food. That's, his, that's what's sustaining him. That's what's keeping him. Necessary food. No, no, I need, I need the word of God. I need to hear from God if I'm going to be able to live in this life. Job had that figured out. He endured through it with patience. He's waiting. He's waiting for the Lord to answer. I know he makes a lot of foolish statements here and there about wanting to take his life and why didn't the Lord just kill me and why didn't he just... It's a man going through troubles. It's a man going through troubles. He's depressed. He's discouraged. He's downtrodden his three friends are no help and you know he's going he's going i don't know why god won't just kill me fellas if i've done something so egregious don't you think you ought to have killed me why leave me suffering why don't you just take me but he waited and we cannot understand when we cannot understand we can worship and trust god because that's what job did Job's the example of a man who can go through any trouble even when he thinks he's right and still trust that God's going to get him through his troubles. That's the end of lesson one right there. 25 minutes. All right, here we go. I got 25 more to finish. All right, I'm on course. All right, here we go. Second half. All right. Uh, Job continues. And ultimately, Job is, Job is the man who suffers. Uh, we understand that. Uh, notice, uh, turn, over to, uh, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. You know, uh, there's, a, there's a theme to the book, and the theme to the book is ultimately why do the righteous suffer? Right? Why, why do good people go through bad things? Why, do they, why, why can't God just make it so that it's all sunshine and roses and rainbows? Why is it that good people have trouble? 
And Job really answers the question a lot. Uh, and the Lord even reminds us here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 17, he says this, For it is better if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. I mean, if you're going to suffer either way, it's better to suffer for doing the right thing than doing the wrong thing. Because suffering for doing the right thing means the world is persecuting you or the devil's coming after you or it's not that God's having to go ahead and correct you. David goes ahead and, uh, right, and he's got a choice for the punishment he's going to take. And he can, be, he, can, he can be at war with his enemies and he can have, and he goes, uh, I'd, rather, I'd rather go ahead and be at the hand of the Lord. I'd rather be at his mercy than at my enemy's mercy. Why is it that Christians oftentimes choose to be at the mercy of their enemies as opposed to being at the mercy of the God who loved them and saved them? Well, the fear of God is just this reverential trust. You really think Job was reverential trust when he feared God and eschewed evil? No, he was afraid God was going to punish him. He was afraid God was going to punish his kids, so he's making sacrifices to make sure him and God are on the same page. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Because you want to know how he wants it done and what he wants to do. So you try to stay on the same page with him. And that's why it's whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Well, I don't want the Lord to chasten me. Isn't that fear? And so, but you know what the contrast is? I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I'm supposed to fear what God can do. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to fear that. So instead, I don't want him to have to punish me. I'll go ahead and go against what the world would want and let them go ahead and do whatever it is they're going to do because God's going to protect me because I did the right thing. Isn't that amazing? But mankind goes, well, you know what I'm going to do? I want the world to be at peace with me, so I'm going to go ahead and live in the world. And they forgot the other side that he's got to go ahead and chasten you now. The Lord's got to go ahead and scourge every son whom he receiveth. And so, yes, there is, there is the idea, hey, guess what? We do suffer because we're sin. We're sinful. But the Lord makes sure we understand it's better to be punished for well-doing doing it his way, than it is for being punished for doing it the wrong way. We all have troubles. We all suffer. But you ought to be suffering for righteousness' sake as opposed to suffering for doing the wrong thing. Uh, suffering comes from many different, different ways. It comes to us in, in all sorts of ways. One is doing the right thing, which is good. That's better. Galatians chapter 6, he reminds us, right? If we sow to the flesh, will of the flesh reap corruption? Sowing and reaping. The law of sowing and reaping. Uh, you want to sow and do the wrong thing? Well, the Lord will have you reap for that. You'll have troubles for that. In Genesis chapter 37, you have the life of Joseph. And we're not going to go to all these. I was going to, but I don't want to take too much time. Uh, we suffer. Joseph suffers. Why? Because of other people's actions. You realize that Joseph didn't put himself in a pit. But his brothers did. Joseph doesn't get sold into slavery because he wanted to. It's because somebody else chose it. Joseph doesn't go into a famine for seven years after he's been imprisoned because somebody else lied about him. All the things Joseph goes through, and you recognize Joseph didn't have a part in any of it. And the Lord raises him up and makes him second only to Pharaoh. Yeah, but all those troubled times, I don't really... Okay, well, friendship with the world is enmity with God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, you know it. No temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able. But will also with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. You and I go through temptations. You know what those are? That's a, that's a form of suffering. I know suffer there means to allow, uh, but the truth, the truth is that's a form of suffering. They have to deal with those temptations. And it's a choice that we get to make now. We have been tempted. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. 
and all those pieces, and it, it comes from suffering. Satan shows up, Ephesians chapter 6, we put on the armor so we can stand against the wiles of the devil. Satan shows up and tries to get us to go that way. Uh, chastisement comes, and that's our, that's our suffering for doing the wrong thing, right? Hebrews chapter 12, I quoted it a little bit ago. Um, all those places, there are plenty of ways for us to end up in trouble. Plenty of ways to bring about suffering. But we also have to remember we don't get to blame God. We should not blame God for every bad thing that happens to us. The world is a sinful world. And it has gone from bad to worse. Bad things happen and God's original intent was not for mankind to ever sin. But because of mankind's sinful choices, you and I are stuck in a place where you and I are facing the consequences of everyone's sin. We go through troubles and we go through problems and we have issues and, well, why does God allow that and why does God allow this and why does God... Because God allowed a free will. Why do you allow Adam and Eve to eat the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat? Well, because He gave them a free will. He gave them a choice. Aren't you glad He keeps letting you have a free will? Sometimes I wish he'd take it from me so I wouldn't mess up. <laughs> but boy, we look around and we go, I'm glad I can choose. I'm glad I can choose. I'm glad I'm not a Calvinist. I'm glad the Lord is not a Calvinist. You say, why? Because then he would have decided if I was going to heaven or not. That's not the way he works. It's outside of his character. It's outside of his character to go, well, no, no, you have to do this and you have to do that. That's not the way he works. You look at the scriptures, you find out, well, he, he affects the, the lives of men. He reaches down and he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And yeah, Pharaoh already made choices. Romans chapter 1, what does God do? Well, Romans chapter 1, I mean, he gives them up and he gives them over and he does all these things. That's not the Lord doing that to them. They made choices and they get the consequences of their choices. Pharaoh made choices. God gave them the consequences of his choices. You want to harden against me? Okay, I'll make sure you stay that way so I can get all the glory I possibly can and then I'll let you die in a Red Sea. Feel free. But you didn't want to listen and you didn't want to listen and you didn't want to listen. It's your choice. God allows us, God allows us to go through some suffering to go ahead and make us better. Some suffering comes just for the glory of God. That blind man, why was this man born blind? Because he sinned? Because his parents sinned? Who sinned? Hey, Lord says, what do you sinned? It's for the glory of God today. Why does God allow Lazarus to go into a grave and sit there for four days? Four days, it stinks. Right? That's what his sister told him. So Lazarus' sister said, Lord, he's been dead for four days. He stinks. What do you want to roll that stone out of the way for? He said, oh, so I can go ahead and show you the power of God. If Lazarus doesn't die and suffer, nobody gets to see him raised from a grave. We often lose that. God has a great plan. God has a purpose. It seems unfair. Job feels like things are unfair. But don't you remember that Job was smart enough in chapter 1 to not curse God with his lips nor charge God foolishly. So what does that mean? It means he didn't go, God, this is your fault. God, you did this to me. That's a foolish statement. There's plenty of other things that have happened in your life where uh, I guarantee I've been there, you've probably been there, where you're like, Lord, why did you do this to me? That's a foolish statement, isn't it? Isn't that just a foolish statement? Lord, why did you do that? He may have allowed it, but he didn't do it. He probably wasn't anywhere near it. Not, not making it happen. He probably was just sitting there going, well, that's about to happen. Hope he calls on me. I can help him. But you get, why do the righteous suffer? Job goes ahead and gets confused. Look back at Job chapter 10. Go back to Job chapter 10. <clears throat> Job 
excuse me, Job chapter 10, verse number 15. Job is speaking here. He says, if I be wicked, woe unto me. And if I be righteous, yet will I not lift up my head. I am full of confusion. Therefore see thou mine affliction, for it increaseth. Thou huntest me as a fierce lion, and again thou showest thyself marvelous upon me. Thou renewest thy witnesses against me, and increasest thine indignation upon me. Changes and war are against me. Wherefore hast thou then... Uh, Wherefore then hast thou brought me forth out of the womb? Oh, that I had given up the ghost, and no eye had seen me. Job's confused as to why the righteous suffer. He has no problem knowing that if I be wicked, on, woe unto me. That's how he started that phrase. If I'm wicked, woe unto me. I deserve. I deserve this. But Job's in confusion because he's going, I don't know what I did to deserve this. I have no idea. I'm full of confusion. I'm not going to lift up my head because I don't deserve to. But I'm confused because I don't know why he's going against me. Why do the righteous suffer? Why do bad things happen? And on top of that, Job chapter 21 in Job 21 and verse number 7, Job starts talking again and he says, Wherefore do the wicked live? Become old, yea, are mighty in power. Their seed is established in their sight with them and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bull gendereth and faileth not, their cow calveth and casteth not her calf. They send forth their little ones like a flock and their children dance. He keeps going on. Uh, you say, what's he talking about? Why do the wicked get to prosper when good people have bad things happen to them? Why does God take great men off the face of the earth and he leaves lousy wicked ones? I mean, you look, over, you, you look around and you wonder, don't you? Don't you ever wonder? Well, how come so-and-so, why did they go home to be with the Lord? And he left that guy. I mean, come on. Like, wouldn't it be better if we, and I'm not going to name some names this morning just because I probably shouldn't. But boy, uh, you know, you look around, you think, boy, why does the Lord leave that guy? He is doing more against the cause of Jesus Christ. And this guy was doing more for the cause of Jesus Christ than anybody else I knew. And you go ahead and take him home and take him to heaven. And this guy, you leave here messing people up. You go, why does God do that? That's Job. He's in confusion. He doesn't know why do good, bad things happen to good people and why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked have it good and that's what it seems like. Doesn't it seem like that sometimes? And uh, don't worry, I'll name him later. Um, and there's uh, nowhere in the book will you find that God gets to tell Job why everything happened. Job doesn't get a real explanation. We'll get the results here at the end, but we don't always get answers to why these things happen. I do know this. His thoughts are not my thoughts, neither are his ways my ways. So sometimes you don't get to know. And when you finally get to know, you know where you'll be? In eternity. When he goes ahead and shows you. Well, why did I go through that? Sometimes you don't ever get to find out. You know why Job, you know why I think Job went through this? For you and I. You know, Job has no idea that Elihu is writing. He has no idea that somebody's going to take all this down and literally... 4,000 years later, you and I are looking at it. Job got the answer to his prayer. He wanted it written in a book. He wanted it with a pen of iron. He wanted it scribed down so everybody could know. And the Lord said, okay, I can do that. The oldest book in the Bible right here. 
And it's about the, the man who suffered the most. Outside of Jesus Christ, the man who suffered the most and was a good man before it started. Isn't that amazing? So what's the Lord doing? Letting you know that his ways are past finding out. You and I may not get all of our answers now, but we will get them. We'll get them in heaven. All those things will be taken care of. You'll know why he did certain things. You ever go through some troubles and not know what the Lord was doing at the time, and then about five, six, seven, eight years later, somebody else is going through and you're able to comfort those who are in any trouble? I'll talk a little bit about more what suffering accomplishes, but we have to understand that without faith it is impossible to please him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Job knows that God is working out some sort of a purpose. Uh, he thought that God should let him know. <laughs> right? He wants God to tell him, tell me what I'm doing. If I could just meet with him, if I could talk with him face to face, if we could just work this out, you get that all over Job. But Job chapter 25 is a good one if you wanted to look there, uh, beginning of the chapter. But Job understands and he knows that God is in control. He still understands God is in control. But you know what Job doesn't have that you and I have? Job didn't have Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. Job doesn't have the conversation that happened in heaven between, uh, Jesus, with, between God the Father and between Satan. He doesn't get privy to that discussion. He has no idea that the Lord reached over and put all of his chips on Job and said, go ahead and trust him. I'm going to trust him. Do whatever you want. I trust him to follow me. If Job would have known that, you know what Job would have done? I'm good. He doesn't have to tell me anything. I know what I'm supposed to do. Christian, just a little side note here. Don't you know the Lord wants to bet on you? Don't you know he wants to have that same confidence in you? Though they would never betray me. And the devil looks and he goes, I can get him to fall. And he says, not that one. Not him. Not her. You and I have the glimpse into heaven that this warfare is happening, that God and Satan have been in contest, and it's about to not be much of a contest. But anyways, uh, the Lord's allowing this thing to play out, and you and I are in a warfare. He gives us all the pieces and the armor and all the things. He tells us specifically that we are there. He tells us specifically that this warfare is happening, and then he looks and goes, and I trust them to get it done. We have what Job didn't have. We have assurance that God is with us. We have the assurance that no matter what troubles and trials and problems we go through, we have the God in heaven who can take care of those problems and will see us through, or he will take us home in the midst of those troubles. Either way, we still get to give him glory, and we still get to praise him, and we still get through all of our suffering, and we understand that God is in control, and we know why some of those things can happen. We understand the battle that's around us. At least we're supposed to. We're not supposed to be ignorant of Satan's devices. And Job has no idea those first two chapters happened the way that they did. He just knows that he lost all of his stuff. We lose our stuff and we go, God, why'd you do that to me? Even Job wasn't that foolish. Why is it that we can't figure out God's not looking to take all your stuff? Didn't he promise you a life more abundant? Well, then why does he want to take all your stuff? Well, then who do you think wants to steal, kill, and destroy? I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundant. I don't... Anyways, going a little too far on that, so I'm going to pull back in so I can finish. Job has no idea what's happened in chapter 1 and chapter 2. If he did, I think it would have been easier for him to comprehend. And the rest of the book, you and I wouldn't have. Wouldn't need it. Because Job knows, oh, I'm just standing for God because God trusts me. 
But what, what does suffering do? Well, I'm going to give you some references because we're not going to turn to all these. I got five of them, six of them, sorry. Uh, suffering accomplishes six things. And so if you want to write these down, these are pretty good. First uh, Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It helps us not to sin and to find the will of God. That's what suffering will do. It'll help you not to sin and it'll help you find the will of God. Number two, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, familiar probably to you. It helps us to be a better comfort. It helps us to be a better comfort to others. Number three, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. It can make us stronger. Suffering makes us stronger. Number four, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 25 and 26, it unifies the church. Suffering unifies the church. In 1 Peter chapter 1, number 5, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7, it will glorify Jesus Christ. And number 6, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 12. It can, be, it can be the proof of godliness. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 is proof of godliness. Now you all know, and uh, you've, been in the, you've been in the book of Job before, uh, chapter 32 through 37, a man shows up, the name of Elihu. He's the silent fourth comforter. Hasn't said anything up until now. Doesn't speak up. Elihu tries to comfort Job, and he has a different approach than anybody else. Ultimately, Elihu says that God sends suffering to chasten and to teach us. That's not bad. So far, so good. He points out the power and the wisdom of God. Also true. Elihu, out of the four, is the best guy and the best comfort to Job except for one problem. He never actually helps Job. He gives God glory. He gives him praise. He talks about that we can learn from these things and we can understand these things and we can get help from these things. All true. But he does not show Job how that's actually a help to him. So Elihu even fails to be a comforter. And then in chapter 38... The Lord shows up. Chapter 38, all the way through the end of the book, you have, uh, you have the Lord speaking, a little piece from Job, but mostly it's the Lord speaking, from chapter 38 all the way to the end. And Job gets asked a series of questions by God that Job has zero answer for. Zero. There is no answer that Job can give that would be adequate to answer the Lord's questions. What this does is it humbles Job even further because God is not asking. He was doing it to prove a point. His point was, Job, I am God. That was it. I am God and you are not, Job. And as he stands there, Job's humble response is found in chapter 42. And he sees that God is absolutely perfect and in control. You notice immediately in Job's reply, and I won't read it for the sake of time, you find immediately in Job's reply that when you see God for who he is, you will see yourself for who you are and how feeble and miserable and sinful and truly a failure we are compared to him. We can look around at the rest of the world and go, oh, I'm doing pretty good. And then you get in the presence of a holy God and you realize you are not good. Job's humble and he is trying to fit God into the confines of his own logic. But God is beyond our own logic. Job realizes, I was trying to figure you out and I can't figure you out. How am I supposed to do that? You aren't going to figure him out. 
but he is wonderful to us. Job rebukes, or God rebukes Job's three friends for their folly and not speaking the right things about Job, falsely accusing him. He then has them offer sacrifices and has Job pray for them. By the way, that shows how great Job is. He is willing to pray for his friends so that they can have forgiveness from God. It's one of the odd times in the Bible that I can pray for somebody else to help them get forgiveness. It was his enemy. They were no longer his friends. They were miserable comforters. And he had to intervene and be forgiving to those men who did not do him well. That humbled his friends. Because without Job, who they've accused, they would not have a right relationship with God. By the way, that shows you that others affect your relationship with God and that you affect them. Lastly, Job is restored twice as much as what he had before. We find out behind the scenes of what happened to Job and the whole thing and we get the whole story and everything is included. You know what God says? God says, I can bless far more if you're willing to go through suffering for my sake. That's what we learn. We learn that although suffering is going to happen, it is better to suffer for righteousness sake because when God is in control and he is on the throne, he will establish and take care of you. And then on top of that, when you're tried, you'll come forth as gold. And when you show up, he'll go ahead and be able to bless you twice as much as you had before. We feel like God takes things. We feel like God's removing things. We feel like things aren't fair. And God says, you're right, they're not fair because I'm going to bless you twice as much as you had before if you trust me. And that's the way he works. He blesses us for being faithful to him. And Job died being old and full of days. What a wonderful testimony. That is why Job is one of the greatest examples of suffering and one of the greatest examples of being a good godly man. Father, I thank you for the morning. I thank you for your goodness. I pray you would bless our time together. Thank you for just how, how amazing you've been to us and how good you've been. Father, I do pray you'd bless the services this morning. Help everything to be done just the way you want it to. Father, that Jesus Christ would be high and lifted up. We pray you would come back soon in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a break.